And now our reading for today comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 24, beginning with the 36th verse. But about that day and hour no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they, will, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away, so too will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would, not have let it ha- and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. Please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on all of us. Melt us, mold us, fill us, use us for your glory. Amen. Well, it's hard to mistake that the Christmas season is finally here. I know that there were radio stations and stores and such that got a jump start on the season this year, but now, post Thanksgiving, we really can't deny it. It's here. We see it here in the meeting house, every radio station you turn on, every store you walk into, there's just that spirit in the air of Christmas. And I have to confess, this is always a tricky time for preachers, though, because for preachers and for us in church, it's actually the season of Advent, not Christmas. So you're in this sort of tricky place where how much Advent do you want to emphasize and how much Christmas do you want to emphasize? And then there's the issue that every year Advent comes. And so it's like the same thing every year. So how do you get creative every Advent? So as a preacher, you know, part of me wants to be like the Puritans. You know, the Puritans didn't celebrate Christmas. Um, and they certainly didn't celebrate Advent. So part of me is like, well, why don't we just do like a cool like Bible study this, this session rather than have to deal with Advent? I'm serious. This is a temptation. But as I was thinking about this a little more closely and dwelling on the concept of Advent, I, uh, I started to think about its importance. Now, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus. literally means arrival, coming. It's all about the arrival of Jesus. Not just the arrival uh, as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem, but also about uh, the second coming. The actual arrival of God into our lives, it's transformative. That's what we're waiting for here. That's what the season's about. It's not just about Bethlehem. It's about God coming into our life in a real and transformative way. That's Advent. That's what we're preparing for. And if I thought of any question that mattered most in our lives, this has got to be one of the ones that matters the most. God actually coming into our life in a real tangible way and in a transformative way. I mean, so often we go through life and uh, we don't experience the transformative power of God. Particularly in this season. I mean, you have routines going on. There's always stuff to do. 
They're gifts to buy. They're parties to go to, parties to plan. Uh, particularly your tax accountant. You're always end of the year things going on. End of the year things for anyone going on. And so in this time, as much as anything else, how much do we actually spend thinking about God, the transformative power of God coming into our life? How often do we feel it? I mean, after all, we could get so caught up in the season, why even come to church? We could get plenty of Christmas stuff out there. That those good moral lessons that show up in those Christmas themes. But if we actually are curious about this question, how does, how does the transformative power of God come into our life? Then uh, this is the place to come to think about that. How do we prepare for it? I uh, recently have been embarking on a spiritual journey of sorts, spiritual quest, trying to uh, deepen my connection with God. This is the fun thing about being a minister. I get paid to do this in addition to wanting to do this. And one of the books that I've been reading to help me in my spiritual journey is Anthony DeMello's book, Awareness. Anthony DeMello was a Jesuit priest. He died tragically suddenly of a heart attack at age 57 in the late 80s. He's a Jesuit priest who was a great spiritual mentor and leader, especially of, of retreats. And after he died, one of his students uh, took a recording, a tape recording of one of his retreats and basically transcribed it into this book, Awareness. So I'm going through it. And so it's sort of almost like going through one of these spiritual retreats of one of these great spiritual leaders of the end of the 20th century. And DeMello begins his book by saying, our whole goal, of course, is to be awake. To be awake to God's presence in our life, to be awake to real life. DeMello was someone who was Indian. He grew up in India. He was heavily influenced by both Hinduism and Buddhism, and you see it a lot in his writings. But he's like, so, so the whole goal is to be awake, awake to the presence of God. But he starts off and he says, most people in the world don't want to actually be awake. Most people don't want it. They don't want God to come into their lives because then it might force them to question things that they actually would feel better not questioning. Because as soon as you become awake, as soon as you start seeing the way things are, maybe you might realize that you're not doing the right thing, or the people around you aren't doing the right thing, or whether your values might not be correct. It's a lot safer to just avoid being awake and just carry on doing the same old thing. This past week, I was in uh, Winnetka, Illinois, visiting my brother and his family for Thanksgiving. And one of the great things about traveling, particularly traveling to a different culture like the Midwest, uh, <laughs> you get to see things in a new light. And I have to say, I, you know, I, it's always great to see my nieces and nephew and my brother and my sister-in-law and my sister who now lives up there. But you walk into Winnetka and this is like Pleasantville, if you've ever been there. I mean, this is like intentionally a flawless American suburb. Uh, every house has got just the right manicured lawn, and they're perfectly spaced apart. There are these back alleys where all, the, uh, where all the garages are, and the kids play in the back alleys. Uh, my nieces and nephew can walk two blocks to their elementary school, and the middle school is just two blocks in the other direction. And when you're in Winneka, uh, everyone is white. There's no, there's no diversity that way. Uh, it's one of the wealthiest towns in the entire United States. Uh, in terms of per capita income and in terms of real estate prices. And everywhere you go, everything is, everything is just great, right? 
I mean, you've got, uh, there's never a question in Winnetka of people getting health insurance or having to pay for health care bills. Uh, there's not a question in Winnetka about uh, people being able to afford new gifts for Christmas or things like that. Um, it's all just happy and great. And I, and I was sitting there, I mean, there's this sense of walking around the streets of Winnetka and like feeling like you're in La La Land, you're in this bubble. And I, at the same time, I'm reading Anthony DeMello. <laughs> and I'm like, do we really want to be awake? Do people in Winnetka want to be awake to some of the realities outside of the bubble? I mean, there's this intentionally created bubble that's there. They're there because they want to live in this bubble. They want to raise their kids in this bubble. But is that really being awake? And let's say you were awake would that force you to question some of those things? And again, being up there then, it forces me to consider the bubbles that I'm in. And I'm in quite a few bubbles myself. And it's like, huh, do I really want to be awake? Do I really want to wait for the advent of God? I don't know. It's a question to ask. Later on, we went down to the Lincoln Park Zoo. Uh, so there's this great zoo in, in Chicago, in Lincoln Park, and they had, like they do here, they have these zoo lights. So we decided to take the kids to the zoo lights uh, at the Lincoln Park Zoo. And we walk in, and one of the buildings that we went into was this uh, whole Africa uh, building with Africa, uh, different animals in different African animals and uh, things like that. And we, we're walking through, and again, it's got this big uh, sign on the front that it's given by this guy named uh, Joseph Regenstein. Re- Re- Regenstein. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correct, correctly. Uh, and, you know, me being curious, you know, I, so I take out my phone and get on Wikipedia, because I live on Wikipedia, and I, and I look up this guy, and Joseph Regenstein, Regenstein uh, he founded a chemicals company, um, and that's where he made his fortune. And the chemicals company is a company that created a lot of insecticides and pesticides that actually gave rise to Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, which was the beginning of the modern-day environmental movement in the United States. So here I am in this zoo that theoretically celebrates nature, and it's given, the building is given by a guy whose life work uh, helped to <laughs> degrade and destroy nature. And I'm walking through this, and I'm like, wow, this is a little intense here. <laughs> You know, how awake do you want to be? Do you really want to be that awake? Or can, can, I just enjoy, can I just enjoy walking through the zoo without getting in my head like this? And then, of course, you're in this African exhibit, and you, know, you can't help but then think about the nature of zoos in general. Like, I wonder if in, uh, in places in Africa they have exhibits where they have like the Chicago exhibit, where you walk in and you see like, opossums and raccoons and things like that, and you're like, this is what a raccoon is like. I, I, I don't know. There's this... It, there's this layer of colonialism that's inherent in zoos, particularly when there's this whole, like, hey, look at the nice African people here. And I'm walking through just feeling so profoundly uncomfortable here. But there, there are my nieces and nephew walking around having a good time. Can I, why, why be awake? Wouldn't you rather just not? Because there's so many different examples in our life that are like that. But unless all of a sudden we become awake to things the way God's working? I don't know. Do we do that? Do we, do we want to seek that out? One of my favorite theologians, uh, as you all know, because I've talked about him a lot, is this guy Paul Tillich. <clears throat> and I like Tillich for a lot of reasons. Tillich is a Christian existentialist. So he uses existentialist framework, existentialist philosophical framework, to examine questions of God. Existentialists are deeply concerned about the question of being. As a philosophical question, why is there being and not non-being? Right? And one of the things that 
existentialists will bring up, and Tillich certainly brings up, are there are various threats to non-being in our life. Tillich brings up three, one of which is fate. We can't control our fate. We are are finite beings. And this causes anxiety. This is a threat to our being. We can't control uh, our IQs that we get. We can't control the families we're born into. We can't control so many different aspects of our life. Uh, All of a sudden, our job takes turns that we, we can't imagine. We can't control that. And these different things come up. And as these things strike us, sometimes these threats of non-being strike us so intensely that they shake us to our core and they threaten our very sense of existence. The fear of death is the ultimate sense of fate. Our lives will come to an end at some point. The existential anxiety of this shakes us to our core and threatens our very being. Another form of non-being that Tillich talks about is uh, there's the non-being of emptiness. You go through life and there's no purpose or meaning to your life. You're alone. There's this hollow emptiness there which threatens your very sense of being. In its most extreme sense, it's meaninglessness entirely. These types of existential anxiety, these types of moments of existential anxiety could lead us to actually destroy our being, either by self-destructive behaviors or even by taking our own lives. Or another sort of threat to our being is guilt. We feel guilty about things. We don't live up to others' expectations, the expectations of the world, the expectations we set for ourselves. We get ourselves in trouble. We get ourselves in trouble with the law. Something goes wrong. We feel horribly guilty. We cheated. We lied. We knew we shouldn't. In its ultimate sense, this is condemnation. Again, this is something that can threaten our very being. Tillich talks about these things. And the way Tillich frames it is, he's like, the reality is, is that, you know, our being gets so threatened by these things, the question becomes, why do we have being and not non-being? And his answer is because there must be some sort of ground of being beneath that. The only way you can justify existence in the, in, because again, existential anxiety gets to be so bad. You've been through these times, I'm sure. Times where you feel so guilty, you don't even want to go on. Or times where you're so sort of caught by the fickle nature of fate that you're saying, this is so unfair, I can't go on. Or you're left so empty and life seems so meaningless that you can't go on. These things happen to everybody. And when that happens, there's this courage to actually still exist, to still be. And that comes from a ground of being, something else. That comes from God. And when that, that's what God is for Tillich in this existential framework. And when God strikes us, God comes into our life. This is this adventus, this advent of God. It's powerful. It's transformative. It changes us. It sustains us. Again, I've always found this framework of Tillich quite persuasive. But of course, what, what's, what's the point? Where do, where do we find that? Where do we find the presence of God most fully and completely? For Tillich, it's when we're in these moments, these periods of existential anxiety. That's where we find God. When life is great and fine, you don't, you don't feel that. You don't need to. The ground of your being might still be there, but your being is not being threatened. So there's no need to actually pay attention to it. You can go along and everything's fine. Why go to church? Why pray? Why these different things? Life is great. Those people who believe in God, they're so foolish. But then when your being is threatened, then that's a different story. Again, Tillich came to a lot of his insights about uh, his perspective on faith through being a chaplain in World War I in the trenches, where every day he had to go out and there was no meaning to anything he was doing. And these young men were dying left, right, and center for no purpose whatsoever. Again, Superman couldn't run through a bunch of barbed wire with machine guns mowing you down and still live. doesn't matter how courageous you are. And he had to watch this. We, we, how did you actually have the, have the capacity to carry on? 
But again, if you want to find God, that Adventist experience of God, it's somewhere in those moments of existential anxiety. What does that mean for Advent, for experiencing God? Another theological framework that I like very much is liberation theology. Here's another one that's intriguing to consider as we think about the presence of God. So liberation theology grows out of the 1960s in Latin America. And in Latin America in the 1960s, there's massive income inequality. And in Latin America in the 1960s, there uh, are high levels of poverty. And as a result, uh, a lot of bad health outcomes as a result of that, um, among other issues that go along with poverty in every community. And in the midst of all of this suffering that's going on in Latin America, the church is focused just on the next world, the hereafter, the Catholic church of its day. It's focused on your individual sins and, and trying to get a ticket to heaven. And so these liberation theologians saw this, and they're like, if Jesus was here, he'd be pulling his hair out. He's like, this is, if Jesus was here, his job would be to, his goal would be to end suffering, to end oppression, to stand with those people who need it. You know? And so liberation theologians look at the structures of power and how they create poverty and other things that are sin in that way. So liberation theology focuses on the structures of sin in society, particularly things like poverty or racism um, or other issues that tend to degrade human beings. It's that degradation of humans and that suffering that results that God wants to fight against, right? So liberation theologians have this interesting framework, though, is that the way God shows up, God shows up in marginalized communities in the process of liberation. So what you do is you go to marginalized communities or you are in a marginalized community and the very first thing is you take your human experience and then you read it in light of the Christian tradition under the lens of liberation. That's the way liberation theology works. That's the way theology is done in liberation theological circles. And again, hugely influential. This is something that became influential for uh, black liberation theology in the United States and feminist liberation theology. This is why you have James Cone, that famous black liberation theologian, saying, if you understand Jesus, you have to say that Jesus is black. Again, he's writing in the late 1960s in the United States. He's like, if you don't see, the, if you, if you don't see Jesus in the oppression of black Americans in the 1960s, you don't understand the gospel, period, is what Cone would say. And then in the 1970s, in the feminist, uh, in that second wave feminist liberation movement, you have the same thing with feminist writing, saying if you don't see Jesus in the oppression of women, the constant oppression of women, you don't get it. Um, and again, I find this very compelling. But one of the essences is, where do you find God? What does the transformative power of God come into your life? When you're actually standing with marginalized communities or when you are realizing how you yourself might be marginalized and when we look at society today and you see how marginalized say for instance women still are in society today we still have not had a woman as president of the United States when you look at academic disciplines of women versus men early Early childhood kids, you know, women and men, you know, similar academic achievement in things like math and sciences. You get to high school and somehow our society teaches 
girls that they're not supposed to be good at math and sciences. And so all of a sudden you start seeing these gaps appear that don't appear in other countries. <laughs> these things are culturally produced based on oppression of women in our society that we reproduce again and again and again. And it comes up in all sorts of ways. But again, liberation theologians, how do you find God? Where's the adventus of God? Where's the transformative presence of God? On the margins. In the place of oppression. Jesus, in our text for today, is in the middle of Holy Week. He's in Jerusalem with his disciples. And you can imagine how excited his disciples must be. Here they are, they're following this guy who's like a superstar into Jerusalem. As he's walking into Jerusalem, people are laying down things at his feet and cheering him on. Yay, Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he's the rock star with crowds there, you know, being the cool guy, going up against the Pharisees. Everyone's like, yeah, Jesus, this is great. And then he brings up this passage. (laughs) This is part of a longer sort of discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. He brings up this passage where he's talking about the coming advent of God into the world. And again, this passage is really curious too. It's caused uh, certain theologians a lot of discomfort because Jesus says explicitly that the son, a.k.a. Jesus, doesn't know when this advent is going to happen. Which some people, again, I'll leave it to the Trinitarian theologians to think about that one. But the basic point is, Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to be on trial. He, he's, he, he knows where he's going to end up. And then after that's all done, after the disciples are in their normal life going about things, are they going to be ready for when the transformative power of God comes into their life? That's his question. Are they going to be ready? Are they going to look for it? Are they going to wait for it? Over the next three weeks in Advent, I want us to focus on exploring this topic a little bit more. What does it mean for God to come into our lives? How do we find it? How does it shape us? How do we go explore it more deeply? But the first step in that is actually having to want that and to wait for it. To want to be awake to what that might mean, even if it has consequences. To realizing that exploring this presence of God might mean going into some places of existential anxiety or stepping into places of marginalization and oppression. Maybe it's in those places where God shows up. The first step is to want it, to wait for it, to anticipate it. And that's the message that we get on the first Sunday of Advent.